Fantasy Feud, a pitcherless baseball podcast where we are tackling all of the most relevant debates in fantasy baseball each week. I'm Sarah Sanchez, and I'm here with Shelly Burstreet to talk through both sides of the hottest fantasy baseball debates right now with some of the greatest minds in the industry. And today is super fun because we have a special guest who was just in the GLARF draft with me. We're going to talk more about that in a second if you're not familiar with GLARF and the Earth League. So this is our first chance to debate a draft that has actually happened. And we're going to find some of the hottest controversies in that draft, talk through decision points and more. But before we do that, Shelly, how are you doing today? Um, I, I'm doing well. Um, I can't believe this is already our uh, third podcast already. So, yep, starting to get into the group of everything. And, you know, pitchers and catchers have already reported. So, yeah, baseball's coming. The day pitchers and catchers report is one of my favorite days of the year. It feels like I've survived winter. Yes. And everything (laughs) is going to be okay. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, So as I mentioned in the intro, last weekend was the Glark draft. This is one of the toughest leagues I play in every year. It is a draft that happens in person, which is something we're going to talk about a little bit because it's a little bit of a different dynamic when you're in a room. There's a one-minute clock and people are shouting out their picks and having conversations off to the side and all that jazz. And today we're joined by my league mate and the director of podcasts at PitcherList, Adam Howe. You know Adam from his excellent podcast on The Wire and from his work at PitcherList. And today we're going to hash out some of the biggest controversies from this draft, including Adam sniping Christopher Morrell for me in round 13 and stealing my joy. Aside from that, he's the best. How's this going, Adam? I, I did. I totally did not realize that you No, I absolutely knew that you were picking right after me when I made that pick. I knew what I was doing. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. We'll get into it a little bit later. Uh, but it, yeah, pleasure to be here. This is uh, super exciting. And you talk about and let's just get the, you know, el, you know, get this out of the way as well. You talk about how this was a live draft and that aspect of it is amazing. Um, but let's just throw, make sure everybody's aware. I was one of two people that was not in the room and that was you know for, very unfortunate for me because the experience I missed out on that experience but also we had a nice Zoom call going and so I got to kind of like listen to the whispers of everybody in the room uh because Jake didn't have the camera on so I could kind of hear everybody having conversations calling out players here or there but I couldn't make out what anybody was saying so I definitely felt more disjointed than everybody else in the league. So we'll see if that uh, translated into the way I drafted. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be almost worse than the experience I was having, which was I forgot to bring my headphones. And I usually wear headphones in a live room like that just because I the, when the din gets too loud and the clock is running, like time sort of speeds up, as we're going to sure. talk about with some of the picks here. And I <laughs> had some moments where I was like, I really just want everybody to be quiet for 30 seconds so I can think. But obviously, that's you can't ask for that. Like, I just should have brought my headphones. So I'll make sure I bring my headphones in the future. Um, Shelly is actually also part of the Earth Network of Roto Fantasy Leagues. And she's part of DARF, which I believe is drafting next week. Is that right, Shelly? Uh, yeah, this th- this weekend, actually. Yeah. Awesome. So our next show is going to be a rehash of the greatest debates from the DARF draft. If you are not familiar with the Earth uh, group of Roto Leagues, it's a really cool network. They're all regional. Most of those drafts are done in person, but it's it's a group of people who from it started with, I believe, BARF, which is the Bay Area Roto Fantasy League out in the Bay. And then three years ago, maybe four years ago, we started drafting 
other leagues, including GLARF, which stands for the Great Lakes Area Roto Fantasy League. But there are leagues all over the country. So we have the Waffle House Area Roto Fantasy League, WARF, and we've got NERF, which is the New England Roto Fantasy League. We have SLARF, which is St. Louis. We've got SCARF, which is Southern California. And there are some really great fantasy players in these drafts. GLARF in particular has won the overall competition of the entire Earth Network three years in a row. And this room is stacked, y'all. These are people who play in the main event. They are people who write about fantasy baseball in industry leagues. These are people, it's the hardest draft I've ever done. I'm sure there are drafts out there that are harder and someday I'll do a main event or something and I'll be like, oh, that was even more difficult. But this is at the moment, this moment in time, the hardest draft that I ever participate in. And the more I look at this draft board, the more I just think about all of the decisions and uh, decision points that happen throughout a draft. So we're going to get into it. Before we do, we're going to try out a new format here. Uh, we, I, I talked to my league, league mates about what they thought of the show so far, and, and they're into it. They're subscribed. And thank you so much, Glarf League mates, for doing that. But a few of them were saying, you know, we want to hear something that's a little bit more like what we conceive of as a debate. So we're going to play with taking these topics, and one person is going to get a chance to make their case in three minutes. The next person is going to get a chance to make their case in three minutes. We'll do a little bit of a question and answer to like talk through what we're talking about here. And then we each get one minute rebuttals. Uh, the moderator will shift depending on the question. And we're going to, we're going to stick to this clock, y'all. We're, we're not going to go over. There will be no like rambling over time. If the time runs out and you're in the middle of a sentence, well, those are the points you get to make. We're going to see how it goes. You let us know what you think on Twitter. We are at PL Fantasy Feud. Uh, make sure you're following us. Make sure you're subscribed to the show. And yeah, let us know what you think about it. Let us know what ideas you have to make this live up to your greatest fantasy baseball debates. And with that, let's jump into it. We're going to start uh, right off the bat. Holy pitcher run in the fourth. I will. Um, there, I think of 15 teams in this league, 12 of them drafted pitchers in the fourth. It was just a run of pitchers all the way through. When there is a run like that, do you change your strategy or stay the course? Does the position matter? Uh, Adam, you're going to moderate, so get us started. Yeah, this was a this was kind of an amazing little run that, as you talked about, uh, it kind of started with you. You kind of kicked it off with uh, Tierk Skubal in the fourth pick of that round, and we saw all but two picks in the rest of the fourth round be pitchers. A couple, two relievers, but mostly starters all the way around, and that it didn't really end there. It kind of continued through into the fifth um, as we saw Grace Rodriguez go off, Kodai Senga, uh, Bobby Miller, Blake Snell. And I kind of, quote, ended it with Yuri Perez um, with my pick in toward the end of the 11th pick of the fifth round. Um, and so you, in my mind, you're always going to see a run. You just never know when it's going to start, if you're going to start it, if you're going to be stuck at the end. Um, so you have to make a decision whether or not you went um, you know, pocket aces and you don't really feel like you need to do that or, well, you know what? I was going to go pitcher anyway. I'm going to go ahead and, you know, jump into this run or I'm going to roll the dice and see what, see what's at the end. So, um, Shelly, what is your stance on where do you go when you find yourself, whether it's in the middle, the beginning or the end of a run like this, it doesn't have to be pitcher, but that's what we saw here. Oh uh, yeah. Honestly, I just go with the flow. Like even if, Honestly, every draft for me is is different. How I want to 
do the league if it's a you know a 10 team league versus a 15 team league um so in a smaller league i i definitely just stick to my game plan because there'll be plenty of people on the wire but for y'all's particular league which is a 15 team league um i i you know when i see a run coming i'm just hoping that i'm not the last one um and i just try to get it you know whom whomever you know i need to get whether it's a pitcher um like a, like a starter a, a closer or you know like a a, a a guy with um plenty of uh stolen base potential right so i just kind of it definitely at the beginning i i do kind of follow those runs but then like once you get to the end you just need to get those categories so runs don't really happen so it, it definitely more at the beginning Fair enough. So yeah, you're ultimately what I'm hearing is that is the run itself is not dictating what you're going to do. You're going to stay the course and you're going to continue to kind of, especially earlier in a draft, uh, kind of see where you're going to go and, right. you know, cross your fingers. Sarah, um, are you, are you kind of on the same page or are you going to go in a different direction here? So in this instance, I, I was just looking back at the draft board. It's kind of funny. I both started and ended the run. <laughs> it's like I took Tar Tarek Skubal and I don't love Tarek Skubal. I know a lot of people are super into him this year, but I I took Tarek Skubal. And actually, I think, was the draft board coming back the other way? Because, or am I? No, I, no, no, no. It was the yeah. people who had gone in the third were all of the people that I like as my ace, right? So like Zach Wheeler, Jenny, Jenny Butler took Zach Wheeler with the first pick of the second round. Um, George Kirby was gone. I went with the sixth pick in the third round. Pablo Lopez was gone. Luis Castillo. These are Kevin Gaussman. These are all the dudes that I like as aces. And so Tarek Skubal was the last guy I had on the board that I was like, he could strike a lot of guys out. The ratios are going to be good. The projections really like him. He was a positive value on my draft board. And I figured if I didn't take him, I was staring down a situation where my ace was going to be like Aaron Nola. And I don't trust Aaron Nola. So I didn't want my ace to be Aaron Nola. So I took a chance on my value sheet and I trusted the work that I had done before and said, okay, Tarek Skubal is the best value on my board right now. I need a starting pitcher. And I took him there. I don't love it. I, I don't love Tarek Skubal as my ace, but I do love that I trusted my own process there. Um, I stopped the run, actually, because you took Yuri Perez. If you had not took your, taken Yuri Perez, I would have continued and taken Yuri Perez there because I really like Yuri Perez in that spot. But once you took Perez, I have a little bit of a cliff there for pitchers, and I decided that I wanted to zag a little bit, and the guy I wanted was Nico Horner for two reasons. Nico Horner is eligible at second base and shortstop, and he stole 43 bases last year hitting like 275 pretty sure that he can seal 50 bases. If you look at the shape of Nico's season last year, he had 12 stolen base attempts early in the season and about 12 stolen bases base attempts a month late in the season. He had a little bit of a ham hamstring issue in May. And in those months, May, June, and July, his stolen base attempts drop off down to like the five to six range. And so I just decided I was done with pitchers at that moment in time for a second. We'll see if that worked out for me. It actually led to what I consider the biggest catastrophe of the draft for me at that point in time later. But I like that Nico has that type of potential. I also like that he has the flexibility to give me either a shortstop or a second baseman, which I felt set me up later 
to be open to whether I was taking a second baseman or a shortstop later in the draft. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you said, you know, you started and you chose to end it with Horner and you picked Scooble because of your process. And that's where he was on your rankings. That's where, you know, you felt like the jump from Scooble to literally anybody else was too great to worry about. Now you say like you might've been stuck with Aaron Nola. You wouldn't have had a chance to get Aaron Nola. Aaron Nola went in this run. Um, you would have gotten, no, if you true. didn't, if you had, yeah. if you had not taken Scooble, like you, and you didn't trust any of the guys in this run to be your ace, like, would you have gone, uh, with a position player instead, and then chanced the idea of getting, I mean, you would have probably ended up with Yuri Perez because it, it, in theory, everybody just would have got bumped up one spot. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was looking at the, I, I always get confused which way the board is going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yuri Perez, I don't trust as an ace. Hmm. Um, I like Yuri Perez, but I don't trust him as an ace. Uh, Jesus Lazardo, I have some concerns about. Blake Snell, I, I don't know where ba- Blake Snell is going to pitch. So I was just kind of like, I, I'm not sure if Blake Snell is my dude because he's one thing in San Diego. He might be a fundamentally different thing in say Fenway. And I have no idea where Blake Snell is going. So I took a chance on Scooble and decided to keep writing the position players that were the highest values on my board. And I fell behind on pitching because of that. I think I made up for it later, but I made up for it with some picks that are kind of risky. So Shelly, do you think that, in your last one minute rebuttal here, did Sarah make the right move here going with their process um, or, or, you know, thinking that this was what she was going to do no matter what kind of fits into what you were saying earlier. Um, but do you think that it would have been better off to kind of see what would have ended up on the other end? Um, just based on what she said, I think so. I mean, I'm a big Scooble fan. So, I mean, I like the pick, but when, when Sarah said, I'm not really a big fan of Scoob. I'm like, this is your fourth pick. You should really like your fourth pick. So even if you did stick to, you know, your process, you know, maybe you could have gotten a, you know, another pitcher that you would have liked better. So it was just like, just right at the top. It's like, I want, I want to have the guys that I really like, as opposed to uh, just a big strikeout guy, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think, that oh, makes a lot ahead, of sense. It's just knowing, you know, that I, I I agree completely with that last point, Jelly, that your top five picks, you better really feel confident about it. And it goes to your point earlier about staying with your process. And Sarah, it sounds like you stayed with your process as well, um, as well. But at the same time, if you don't love that pick, you probably need to make a different pick. Um yeah, I, I mean, I, I hear you both. I Although I don't know what pick I would have loved there more. Like I, we were in an area of pitchers that I was like, I need I need a starting pitcher. And I all of the ones I really trust as my SP1 are gone. So I decided to trust the research I had done. And, and I went with that. We'll see how it, it plays out. The next um, issue, the controversy of the day. Adam sniping me on Christopher Morrell. I, I apologize, Adam. I use some non-Nick Pollock friendly words in the draft room, and I, I imagine they were loud enough that they made it through the Zoom call. So I, I apologize in advance. I really wanted Christopher Morrell right there. Shelly's going to moderate this debate. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to try. Thank goodness this is like not live because I'd be afraid of, you know, maybe it's like some fisticuffs going on here. But um yeah, I, I want to start uh, with you, Adam. Um, what what was your kind of why did you go for Morel right there? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to use the full three minutes here. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie. This is pretty straightforward for me. Um, we've heard about this throughout the course of, you know, if you're paying attention to drafts that have been happening or people doing drafts and talking about them, posting draft boards, whatever. One of the main areas that people are concerned about is the outfield and whether and how long can you really wait to kind of fill your outfield. Um, some people are, you know, playing chicken with the idea and seeing how long they can actually do it. I think Sarah, you actually told me this in a draft you did earlier in the off season. Um, you're like, right, I'm going to see if I can go to the tenth round without picking an outfielder. Um, I've done that. I don't like it. It, I, it feels very uncomfortable, uh, especially in in as you go further and further into the draft, you realize, you know, playing time really starts being questionable at best at a very early stage. Um, and so Christopher Merrill ended up being my third outfielder here. And I would have, I would have rather have been at a point where I'm picking my fourth outfielder at that point in the draft. Um, and Merrill still might've been my fourth outfielder. I would have feel more comfortable with Merrill being my fourth outfielder. As it stands, he's my third outfielder. Um, I also started the draft in a very rounded way, but the players that I ended up starting off my draft with are rounded, but they're not power first. Like They're definitely speed guys. Um, uh, Royce Lewis, Ozzy Albies, Trey Turner going up from the third. And they're all... I'm very happy with all those picks. I like all those picks um, and I'm happy with those players on my roster, but I also realize they create a void. Um, I don't have a Jordan Alvarez. I, you know, I don't have the top of the draft, the Julio Rodriguez, uh, Julio Rodriguez or Acuna. I wasn't lucky to get those guys that are even more well-rounded. So I knew I had to make it up with some power. Ended up getting wherever, whatever power I possibly could out of Cal Raleigh, who we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, Jorge Soler, Hopefully that doesn't turn out to be a little bit of a power dip going to San Francisco. Um, but then Christopher Morrell kind of rounded that out as a guy who isn't going to kill me on the base pass, but I didn't really care. Like at that point I was okay grabbing somebody who I was not relying on any kind of stolen bases. I needed somebody at that point in the draft where that was going to give me an opportunity to get me 25, 30 home runs with the right playing time. And we've seen Morrell, uh, you know, go on these streaks where he can continue just carry the the category throughout. And I, I mean, Sarah, I know you agree with that aspect of it. Um, but I mean, that's, that's, I, I think actually this is probably my first of my nine drafts I've done. This is probably the first time I've drafted Morel. Oh, well, that makes me feel much better that you like stole my joy on the, for, for the first time, Adam. No, I, no, I, I appreciate you. I, so I want to go back to like one small thing here, which is, the Tarek Skubal pick was picking with my head. I wanted Christopher Morales picking with my heart. It's not just that he can hit like 35 home runs. He had 37 home runs across AAA and MLB last year and didn't really play all of the time. Like I just feel like that's a 40 home run bat and I love him and he's fun. But I understood why Adam took him despite my immediate reaction. I actually had to pivot pretty quick. And so I looked at my value spreadsheet and I went for the highest player value at that moment. And even though Tommy Edmond has some injury risk and he's actually recovering from an injury right now and there's some uncertainty there, he was far and away the best value on my sheet left on the board. I, again, I love the position flexibility and I love the fact that I can make, he's an outfielder for me right now, 
But if at some point I need a second baseman, there's Tommy Edmond. I can play him there. Like that's something that I can move around later, which helps me out a lot. I love what you said, Adam. I agree with you 100% on the cliff that you have in terms of outfield. I was in a little bit different position than you at outfield at that point. Uh, Edmund is my fourth outfielder slash utility guy who can slot in at second base or some other places. Because I did take Jordan Alvarez in the second. I did take Nick Castellanos later in the draft. I took Evan Carter a couple of rounds before this. And so I felt pretty good about where I was at outfield-wise. But I needed another guy there. And I felt like Tommy Edmund was the most well-rounded player at that point in time. Now, that said, this directly impacted what I did on the turn. So I was picking 12th. Adam was picking 11th. And I had not quite like, you don't have like the turn you have at like 15 or 14, but there were just a handful of picks coming back. It was the short side back to 12. And I backed that up with Nolan Gorman because I was really worried that taking Tommy Edmond with his injury risk, one, it didn't give me the type of power I was hoping to get from Morrell. And two, there was a playing time risk there. It's pretty early in the draft to be banking on a playing time risk with your fourth outfielder. And so I figured if I took Nolan Gorman, he gave me a second base option. He does have, I think, that sort of power potential. Not quite the same level as Morrell, but his barrel rate is really good. I like what I've seen from Nolan Gorman. And given what the Cardinals have done this offseason, I think he's going to play. I think he's going to get a chance to really prove that he's the dude there for them in that lineup. So that was my reaction. And I, I like it. I don't like it as much as having Christopher Morrell. <laughs> Yeah, I always I always hate like when there's like this like one guy in the draft that is just like your favorite player and you have your or one of your favorite players and you just have your heart set on rostering him and someone takes him like right before or maybe like a couple picks. Usually for me it's like a first round pick with Juan Soto. Um so yeah, I usually I'm usually like either heartbroken by the first round. So um but Adam, I had a question for you. Um since you sniped Sarah were you sniped any in this draft? And if you were, how how do you how did you react to that? Yeah, I mean, it's actually good timing that you asked this question because I'm looking at the board and I realized I didn't realize at the time that it happened the next round. But I mean, Sarah and I are picking back to back, right? So naturally, there is going to be some sniping. It happens at least once or twice in a draft to whoever you're sitting next to um, on the draft board. But in the very next on the very next turn, you went with Nolan Gorman. Nolan Gorman was at the top of my queue for the exact reason you drafted him, uh, because I need, I'm, I was still working my way up for that power, and I wanted um, some in, middle infield help here. So I had a pivot there, and we're going to talk about him a little bit later. I ended up going with Jackson Holiday, um, mainly because middle, I was specifically looking for middle infield help here, um, but also the rumors that he could be playing a lot more second base, especially through spring training and then into into the season if he starts with Baltimore. Um, my question, though, is if you were if you had picked Morrell, if I had gone somewhere else and Edmund went somewhere in that turn or whatever, would you still have went Gorman there or would you ended up going in a different direction was gorman your consolation to morale or was gorman already like you were already pinned in on him oh it's such a great question and i would have gone a totally different direction so what i wanted to do there was take christopher morale and then i was going to take another pitcher i was going to take either aaron savali 
or I was going to take Shane Boz, who were both in my queue at the time. And I couldn't do that because I had to t- make up for the power that I had just lost with Burrell. And I didn't trust Tommy Edmond at that high of a pick to have the playing time that I needed him to early in the season. And so this is actually the moment of the draft where I fall behind on starting pitching. And I could feel, I, I could like see it unfolding in front of me and I wasn't sure how to fix it. And it's going to lead right in uh, to our next question, which actually we'll just jump right to it. Um, So probably the most controversial pick of the draft, like there were literally gasps in the room and I did it and it was a little bit of a mistake, a little bit of pressure, but I'll own it and I'll play out the season and see what happens. Um, I took Paul Skeens uh, in what? Let's see here. 17th, bottom of the 17th. Back, yeah, back end of the 17th round. and, And it was because the pitching had really gotten out ahead of me. Like I feel really good about my hitting at this point in the draft. Um, I have Luis Renjifo, who I think is an excellent value. He's like an 11 and a half dollar player. He plays multiple positions. I've got Tommy Edmond for the same thing. Nolan Gorman has a lot of power. Like I already told you all my outfielders love it. Took Spencer Torkelson earlier in the draft as my first baseman. I show him as an excellent value for where he goes. And, but the problem that I was having at this moment, there were two. One was my only pitchers at this point in time. I had Devin Williams as a closer and I had taken Jose Alvarado in the 12th round. We'll talk about that in a second because the other thing that kind of got pushed up here was um, relievers because it's draft with a bunch of people who do the main event. Pitching gets pushed up. You just have to be willing to adapt to that. Um, and the only starting pitchers I had at this point were Tarek Skubal, Justin Steele, who I am much higher on than Almost anybody else, I feel perfectly comfortable with him as my starting pitcher number two. Michael King, who I love in San Diego, but kind of an injury risk. And that was it. That was my starting pitching at this moment in time. And pitching was going fast. And so I was staring at my sheet. The pitcher I personally, me, like most next is Paul Skeens. That is not the way you should draft a (laughs) 15-teamer. Paul Skeens was not going to go for I don't even know how many rounds I probably could have gotten away with not drafting Paul Skeens for like seven or eight more rounds and it would have been fine. I was looking at his ADP on the NFBC right before this show. And since January 1st, there have been 449 drafts, not auctions. He has gone in 363 of those. So it's not crazy to take him, but his range is a min pick of 187 and a max of 477. I'm sort of comfortably in the middle of that, but I didn't need to take him here given the room. And I probably should have trusted my process. My process said that the best value at that moment in time was Nestor Cortez, who went almost immediately after. And the reason I did not take Nestor Cortez, despite the fact that all the work I had done said that's who I should take. I hate Yankee Stadium for every pitcher not named Garrett Cole. I hate it so much. And we've seen like one good season out of Nestor Cortez and some change. And I was just like, do I really believe in that in a park that I hate more than a guy who I really like? And so here's the thing with Skeens. He doesn't have a job right now. He's throwing six and two thirds major uh, minor league innings in his entire career. He was drafted last season. This is a crazy pick. And. He's been, the Pirates have a terrible rotation. Their number two starter is Martin Perez, who goes way later than Skeens in like every single draft. The Pirates have also said he's going to get a shot at the rotation. Now, Adam is going to correctly point out that he's probably not going to start the year in the rotation, but he's going to get a chance in spring training to show what he's got. 
And I just think there's a 10 to 15% chance that Paul Skeens is going to come out and shove. And he is going to shove in such a way that he is going to force the Pirates to put him in the rotation. And with all of the incentives in the collective bargaining agreement now to promote rookies on opening day, there's a non-zero chance that he's a very good pitcher who makes the opening day roster. I'm going to have to be willing to drop him early if that doesn't look like it's coming to fruition. But that's what I did. The room was loud. I was sort of like panicking about pitching. And I went with my heart. The moral of the story is never leave your headphones at home. (laughs) Fair. That's probably a fair uh, thing to take away from all of this. That's what you should take away from it. Um, Yeah. I'm yeah. Obviously I am going to point out the fact that there's non-zero chance that he doesn't start in the majors and how long, if he doesn't start in the majors, how long does it actually take for him to come up? I agree that there is the added incentive to have your rookies come up and, you know, go for rookie of the year. Pitchers don't win rookie of the year. I mean, that's just simple as that. It's it's Paul Skeens is a talent from everything that we understand. And, you know, I will definitely defer to Shelly on that as much as possible as well. Um, but it's just, it's extremely rare to kind of see a pitcher come up and pitch enough to get the eyes of the voters to, to put up enough, you know, stats in general, just to get enough uh, votes for that award. Thus it's, it's less likely that the pirates would get the compensation draft pick from said, you know, award anyway, that being said, um, I, I, I don't see him being up. I also want to just go out and throw a name that we all know and love from last year. And that's Grayson Rodriguez. Um, this is the exact argument that everybody had about Grayson Rodriguez. Like he should be up. Baltimore should bring him up. Oh, he didn't come up, came up a week and a half later. Did he shove? Absolutely not. Um, maybe he had a couple good starts at the beginning, but obviously fell off. And this is what this happens more often than not. Like, obviously we have some nice names that we saw last year come up. Uh, with uh, Tanner Bybee and, and others and even, uh, um, you know, Abbott um, in Cincinnati for a spell. But more often than not, we see them struggle to adapt. Um, and obviously, Skeens has literally no experience at the professional level, no matter how good he was in college, no matter how good he looks from every scouting report you could possibly find on him. Um, and I agree. I don't love a lot of and any of the pitchers that went around him or that you had still on the board. Um, I, I don't know that it's still the juice. I don't know that the juice is worth the squeeze at that point in the draft, but to counter your point earlier, when you're talking about ADP, could you have waited? You might've been able to, you might not have been because if you go and you look at his player page on NFBC, he might have an ADP that's kind of fluctuating and going later in drafts. But in drafts that happened right around Glarf, he was still going at, he had been drafted at 254. He had been drafted at 268. Uh, this is 251. This is right around where you picked him. Um, so not saying that you couldn't have waited, but it's also kind of in line with what we're seeing right now as well. So I don't know. No, I'm so glad that you you bring that up. People are taking him and they're taking him around this spot. Mm-hmm. I, the one thing I'll say about that, you got to know your room. You've got to know who you're playing with. And the thing I know about the Glarf room is that it's generally very conservative. I mean, there's a couple of exceptions here. 
Um, Ellie De La Cruz went exactly well where Ellie De La Cruz has been going. I think that Lucas Beery, who won the auction championship last year's great player, took him towards the end of the second round. Um, there's, you know, there were lots of prospects. And we're going to talk about prospects in a minute um, going in this draft at various places. But this is a pretty conservative room. I think I, I and it would have been much smarter to trust my sheet, which was telling me Nestor Cortez was a $4 value at that point in time. Like I, I saw it in front of me and I was just like, I don't want to draft Nestor Cortez. The other part that I'll just own up to um, before I pass it back to Adam for a rebuttal. And, you know, sometimes you make a mistake in a draft, like it, it happens. Like you, you just have to be able to recover from it and try to get your game back as quickly as possible. James Paxton was still on the board. I like James Paxton a lot. And I just, the clock was moving so fast for me at that moment in time that I didn't see that James Paxton was on the board. And I was very grateful that we had a break at the 20th round because it allowed me to reset and sort of refill my queue and look at pitching and be a lot more level-headed for the rest of the draft because the room was moving very fast for me at that moment. Uh, uh, the only thing I'll say about that is I'm not convinced that James Paxton pitches more innings than Paul Skeens at the major league level. <laughs> So maybe, maybe that was okay. <laughs> so we'll see. I appreciate that. I'm probably going to have to drop Paul Skeens before I think it was Jenny that took James Paxton has to drop him. Though. We'll see. <laughs> uh, next up, we're going to talk catchers. And this is another place where I kind of fell behind my normal plan. Um, Shelly, I think you're moderating this one. What's up with the catcher debate on this board? Yeah. Um, I, for some reason, I've just like, I, whenever I look at a draft board, I always gravitate to where the catchers go because the, it, it, my personal opinion is you really need like two really, really good ones to feel confident, um, especially with how the total like catcher player pool is, right? You like you back in the day, right? Like five, six years ago, you could, be fine with a guy who plays like half the time and hits like, you know, 220. But with how deep the catcher position is, I think that you really do need to pay up. So that's why I always just gravitate whenever I do see a draft board posted to see like where the catchers go. Um, so I'm going to start with Adam on this one. Um, just talk about your just overall strategy you know, going into the drafts, did you stick to it and how it all kind of went down? So, as I said, this was my ninth draft that I've done um, this this season on NFBC, uh, actually ninth overall. I've done all my drafts there. Um, and this was the first draft that I've done where I made sure to pick to quote stud, you know, use my, these are my air quotes that nobody can see, uh, catchers, um, as opposed to going with either I, I've, I've done plenty of drafts where I've just waited, not not like stars and scrubs, all scrubs almost, but like definitely like mid tier and then bottom tier. Um, and I'm much, much happier with how this the results of my draft came out in Glarf based around the fact that I have two catchers that I am extremely confident in regarding playing time, regarding production and regarding just like stability they're not five category players that's extremely rare for the for the for the position I, like that's not something that i think you can really bank on no matter if you grab the first guy or the last guy it doesn't really matter um but 
I also filled needs with my catcher position. As I talked about earlier, like I needed power. So Cal Rally was a target, like a big target of mine at that point because he was going to provide me with the most power of any position at that time in the draft from what any, at least what I was looking at. Um, so I felt extra comfortable with the fact that not only um, was, you know, he was going to be one of my two top catchers, but that he was filling an actual need for my roster as it was being built. Um, I, I agree, Shelley, that, you know, it is it, the catcher position seems deeper than it was. And it, instinctively makes you think, well, I can wait on catcher then because there are more of them. But the if you really start breaking it down, like the playing time question marks, they start adding up real quick after like maybe the second tier or whatever you're doing, your tiers and catcher, um, you start wondering, all right, are we going from a 70-30 split to a 60-40 split to a 50-50 split at most real, real quick? And if you look at just like the auction calculator from last year's stats, yeah, it seemed really deep, but only, you know, only the top 12 catchers provided double digit dollar value on a standard, you know, five by five uh, league was, you know, the, the rosters that we're looking at a two catcher league. Um, and so, yeah, I'm in total agreement. Like when I do my TGFBI draft, any other future drafts I do between now and the end of March, um, getting two guys that I feel are in like the top, like two C1s ultimately is going to be a major uh, target of mine. Man, this is going to be a bad debate because I agree with pretty much everything Adam just said. No, that's, that's not true. I, I, I can do some, I can do some uh, mixing it up here. I, my general goal in drafts, and if you've ever drafted with me in Tout Wars, in TGFBI, in Glarf, uh, on any of the, random gladiators or whatever that I've done in the past is, is exactly what Adam just said. I want two studs. And in this draft, a couple of things happened that kept me from getting two studs. One in round 10, I was going to take Wilson Contreras um, partially because he's my favorite player, partially because I thought having both of the Contreras brothers as catchers would be fun. And partially because I like having two studs, but the, the problem for me became Wilson Contreras sort of ends the, the absolute top tier of catchers for me. And then everybody sort of has flaws of some sort, whether it's they their batting average is terrible or they don't play on a good team or I don't trust the situation. Like there were just injury prone things. Like there were just issues with everybody who was kind of going after that. And so I kept pushing it and I kept pushing it. And in round 17, when I wound up taking Paul Skeens, the dudes that I really wanted were Alejandro Kirk, who I, I consider like the end of the the end of the cliff for this is where I can get an actual catcher who might have a hit tool that makes him worth drafting this high. Um, and then Shay Langoliers went right after that, who's another guy that I'm like, yeah, I could I could see it. And so there were no catchers at that point that I was like, I want this to be my second catcher. So I'm very much a choose your own ad adventure type of drafter. Like if this happens, I'll do that. If this happens, I'll do this. Like I I kind of I, I'm modular in my thinking about things. And the second that Kirk and Langoliers were off the board, I was kind of like, okay, well, going to have to do something different here. Decided I needed, I, and I needed pitching. Like I was, I was in this crunch where I was like, I don't have a second catcher. I definitely need pitching. My outfield looks great, but like I, I, I have created a situation for myself here. And so I decided I was just going to wait. And my idea for waiting was, I'm a huge Cubs fan, as most listeners of this podcast or readers of my work know. Um, Jan Gomes is old and boring 
and going to play. The Chicago Cubs love him. He's been an above average bat relative to catcher for most of his career. He plays like 65% of the time, not 75 or 85% of the time, but they love the way he works with the pitching staff and he's not going to go until way later in the draft. So I popped Jan Gomes into my queue. And then I decided that I was going to use um, one of my last picks to sort of YOLO catcher and pick a high upside prospect who I liked, who I thought had a chance to be really good if they earned more playing time in spring training. And so the downside of this is that now I, I use two of my last three picks on catchers. I picked Jan Gomes and then I picked Yvonne Herrera because I think Yvonne Herrera might play. It's pretty clear the Cardinals don't like Wilson Contreras nearly as much as I do. Um, so they might DH him and let Yvonne Herrera play. And if not, I'll just stick with boring Jan Gomes and hope he can still hit at 36. Yeah, I mean, when I was when I was looking at this, I was like, I usually go from the bottom up because I'm contrarian, I suppose. Um <laughs> But when I saw like, oh, I was like, who picked Yvonne Herrera? Because I've been a fan of his for a while, ever since I read a report from Eric Longenhagen um, on Fangraphs about the sound off his bat and his exit velocity when he was just, you know, like 18 years old. I'm like, oh, dude, I, I've been a fan ever since. So, yeah, I just want to give you kudos for that pick. I do like it. <laughs> ah, thank you. That means so much coming from you. And truly, it was like. John Gomes is my like boring all roster him if I have to, but I really think Yvonne Herrera has a shot to play a lot. And I think he's got a hit tool that I like. I think the name that stands out to me the most that you kind of mentioned right there was, um, and, and this is how I looked at it throughout the course of draft season so far is being stuck with Shea Langoliers. Um, it's just, he's just the type of person that like your type of player that at a, at a catcher position, you're like, this guy has all the playing time you could possibly want at, being well, still being eligible at catcher. Um, but is that going to be more harmful than good? Like, is that volume actually going to hurt me more so than it is going to help me not only being on the A's, not knowing where they're going to play type of thing? Um, I think they actually, I think they're good for this year. It's just, it's the next two years after that, we're not quite sure. Uh, but the fact that like there's nothing around him. And then I, of course, got to pull like a Scott Chu and look at who you guys had on the show a the two episodes ago. And I got to go look at his rolling charts. I got to go look at you know what exactly he did. And the more I look at that, the more I realize he actually made some kind of adjustment in the toward the end of the year where he actually started his strike zone judgment went into the 90th percentile in MLB. His power went up. His contact everything kind of got better in the final like two months of the season uh, based on those rolling charts. And, and so now it's somebody that I'm willing to not push up my board, but now it's somebody that I'm, I feel more confident being quote stuck with as my second catcher. Um, and if I'm, if I'm in that position, Sarah, that you're talking about where like, Oh, I, I wasn't able to grab, you know, my two studs or whatever. I'm going to bank on the fact that I can still grab Shailen and And then he goes off the board. I'm going to be more upset after looking at this. <laughs> totally fair. I think Langoliers went like five picks before me too, though. So I like what I, I that would have been like better, but didn't quite work either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, drafts have stuff happens in drafts, man. To be clear, I've I like mentioned some mistakes here. I, I'm relatively happy with my draft overall. My draft software likes it, like my projections like it, but yeah, catcher and, and that pitching situation are both places where I look at this draft afterwards. And I'm like, oh, if I lose, if I do poorly in this league this year, those are going to be the places that did it. 
Uh, let's move on a little bit. So we've got um, Shelly's going to moderate this next debate, and it's about closers, which is another place where I actually feel pretty okay here. It's a ring, ringing endorsement of, of strategy. Um, but Shelly, what did you see in the in the closer situation? Um, uh, a whole lot of mess, to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, the last couple of seasons for me personally, as a fantasy manager has been able, has been my, I just have never been able to draft a, a, a good closer. Um, in like my first draft of the year, I drafted the two Houston guys, um, and then hater signed. So even when I tried, um, I still failed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's closers of, are always really, really like an interesting dynamic, like within a draft. So I'll go with you, Sarah, like what, you know, were you planning on doing what you did? Did you maybe want to double tap closers? How were you kind of thinking about things? Yeah. So this is a great question. Um, I was planning on double tapping closers. I thought, so I took, I started the closer pick picks. I took Devin Williams in the third, uh, I was, I was on the far side of the board at that point in time. I figured I'd take whichever starter made, made it back to me. And then I was like, Oh, I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, but so I got Devin Williams felt really, or no, I was on the far side of the board and I was going to take a starting pitcher on the back end. It was Tarek Scoople. Um, and I, I felt good about that. Um, and then my hope was that in the mid rounds, Adbert Alzali would make it back to me because I feel like I'm much more confident in Alzali's abilities as a closer, his situation and his playing time than just about anyone in the industry. And in the round that I was going to take Adbert, uh, Aaron Cumming took Adbert and literally apologized to me from across the room, which, which I thought was, I love that people know who my guys are enough to apologize to me for that. But I wasn't terribly worried about it at that point. I wasn't like, I'm I'm on a I'm on an island here with closers. That it is the reason, and again, this this contributed to my starting pitcher and catcher problem later. This is why I bumped uh, Jose Alvarado up to the twelfth round because there was a moment like I was just looking at it, and he had the next best situation of anyone on the board. He had that time period last year, right when the season started, where he like didn't walk anyone for a ridiculous number of games. And his issue has never been stuff. His issue has always been command. And I was like, with Craig Kimbrell gone, I really feel like that's Alvarado's job. Now, he's a little injury prone. Rob Thompson has liked to mix and match with closers in the past. So there's a chance he doesn't wind up with all the saves. And the Phillies have some other interesting arms. They have Jeff Hoffman. They have Orion Kirkering. I am not 100% confident in Jose Alvarado the same way that I would be, hmm, very confident in Adbert Azalei. Like there's always injury risk, right? But like, I feel much more confident that Adbert is the dude than that Alvarado is the dude. But Alvarado was more compelling to me than any other guy who could be a closer at that moment in time. And I bumped him, I think two rounds off up off the value that I showed for him on my sheet because I did not want to be stuck with anything after him as my second closer. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna echo what you said in a different topic. We talked about like it's not gonna be quite a debate because I feel very similarly to how how everything you just said. Um, but I get to a point. I wish I double tapped the closers, and I ended up you know with Paul Seawald uh, in, in the sixth inning, and that was only because I had you know double tapped starters right before him. 
Um, and so I felt, you know, comfortable. I could, I could step away from that cat, from that position and then kind of move on to, to the closers. I wish I had, I, I say, I wish I had picked another closer, like in the next two rounds, but I was already backed up in other, in other categories. Like this is where I started grabbing my first catcher with Yanir Diaz. Um, I got George Springer as my first outfielder, which nobody should probably feel comfortable with saying out loud. Um, I definitely don't, <laughs> but that's where I was at. Um, and then I ended up instead of double tapping, uh, you know, closers, like double tap catchers as we just talked about. So you make your decisions kind of as you go and something has to give. Um, as I, as I was looking through this m- more often than not, like Sarah, like n- two thirds of our league are in this, we're in the same boat as us. We don't only, 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 excuse me, a third of our league, five teams, double tapped closers before the 10th, before the 10th round. Um, and, that's so we're in the same boat as ev- just about everybody else in that situation. Maybe somebody has a leg up, um, maybe somebody doesn't. But I agree. Like anybody, bef- like Alvarado, maybe have been like the most confident. But I don't feel com- I don't feel confident in that at all. So I ended up waiting and just and just trying to fill my bench with a bunch of relievers that could possibly. Like basically, these are my stashes for the first couple of weeks of the season, um, and they're not going to be on my team by the end of April if they don't have a job. And I'm going to end up having to, you know, have IL spots. I'm going to, you know, want to stash in different situations, um, but one of them will. I'll usually I'll end up holding on to at least one of them um, as you know my second reliever. Jason Adam is my my second reliever here. He'll probably stick on just because of the he's the obvious handcuff. Uh, we talked to Mike Carter about this on on the wire last week, who was in this draft as well, and so he definitely had you know opinions on how you know how you're drafting your relievers in these kind of in these situations. But in a 15 teamer, you almost can't expect unless you're very very actively double tapping closers, you really can't expect to walk out of the first 10 rounds with two solid closers. And I ask you the question, like, do we like? I, I feel as though we talked about this in the last episode of On the Wire. I feel as though people think that there are more closers with jobs going into drafts than there were last year. And then the, the question me and Kevin talked about is like, is that true? Like, do we, is that actually true? Or is that just something we're telling ourselves? That's a really great question. That was a great episode, by the way, if you've not listened to the On the Wire where uh, Kevin and Adam talked to Mike Carter about saves. I, I listened to it while I was walking earlier this week and it's outstanding 10 10 recommend as soon as you finish this episode go listen to that um i'm looking at the board and only two people have catchers or catcher have closer situations that i feel are rock solid like jenny butler is going to crush all of us in saves because she has edwin diaz and jordan romano and even with that jordan romano had some back issues at the end of last season he and edwin diaz is coming off a pretty significant knee injury like i don't think that's going to mess up Edwin Diaz's ability to get saves for the Mets, but the Mets aren't going to be nearly as good as people thought they would be last year. Like it's, it's unclear what his circumstance will be. And then the other person who has a really great closer situation is our friend, Aaron Cumming, who has Andres Munoz and Adbert Alzali. He kind of went the mid mid route um, to get to a couple of closers that I really like. But the other person who tapped closers twice before round 10 here uh, is Jake. And Jake Hallisker took Josh Hader, great. And Craig Kimbrell, I, 
as a person whose AL team is the Red Sox and whose NL team is the Cubs, I'm telling you, Craig Kimbrell does not inspire confidence. Like, I know he's a Hall of Famer, and I understand that he is, like, when he's got it, he's got it. And I watched that dude. I don't know if he was tipping pitches. I don't know if he lost his curveball or what for about six weeks of the season in 2019 where he did not get a swing. He did not get an offering at his curveball for weeks. And people were just launching his fastball out of the ballpark. It was one of the worst things as a Cubs fan that I've ever seen in my life. And so I don't know that I feel comfortable with that. I'd much rather have the value for the non-closers who are going at that point. There are a lot of hitters that I would not have been able to take if I wanted to do that, right? Like I wouldn't have gotten a Spencer Torkelson or a William Contreras. I would have had to pass on a Nick Castellanos or I would have had to pass on a starter like Michael King. So I, I feel good with where I am, but I think Adam, you absolutely nailed it. And I cannot stress this enough in every draft, whether it's a 10 teamer, a 12 teamer, a 15 teamer, you're making choices. You're deciding where you want to load up and you're deciding where you're willing to roll the dice a little bit. The deeper your league goes, 15 team league, you make a lot more choices and they have consequences and you're just hoping you can cover those consequences with the rest of the draft. And I did that the best I could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the decisions you make, they have a trickle down effect more so in these deeper leagues than in your 10 teams, but they still exist in those shallow leagues as well. Uh, Adam, it looks like you're moderating our next topic. So do you want to introduce it and Shelly and I'll debate it out? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this was something that I was really, I really want. I was very curious about because we talk about it all the time. Every podcast you listen to, every article that is about ADP, it comes up all the time. How much does ADP actually influence your draft? Whether it's the ADP you see in the draft room or the ADP you're just you've got in the back of your head with your research and all that. How much is that actually influencing? Um, and so just. Just some background on this draft as I looked into it. Um, I looked at the ADP of 15 team drafts since January 1st. There were 96 of them. Now, that's a mix of some gladiators that were still going around, some you know draft champions, 15 teamers, as well as some draft and holds of different formats. So because of that, I also took all the, te- all the players that were drafted in all 96. So I'm not looking at the bottom end because ADP is so wonky at the, at the back end of drafts. You, I mean, I picked uh, uh, Doyle from Colorado and he had an ADP of like 720 or something like that. Doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so 96 drafts, all the players drafted in there. Of, of that pool of players, no nobody in this draft strayed more than 13 picks from ADP. Um, on average and that was Lucas Beery who was the he he did the most buy low situation so he tried to get as much value based on ADP guys dropping down as much as possible but still this is still on average 13 uh, a, a 13 pick difference on the other end both Dave Swan and myself we could reach the most to get our guys but we only had a plus 10 on average throughout all 15 teams put together we only strayed one ADP spot for those 96 players um, or for those players that were drafted in all 96 drafts. So what I ask you to, Shelly, I'm going to start with you here, is in your opinion, how like how much does ADP actually influence you? Not how much should it, but how much does it actually influence? 
Um, probably more than I would like to say that it does, because I mean, I mean, I've done a couple of like slow drafts and sometimes, you know, you have to wake up really late at night, look at your phone all groggy eyed and you just like pick an ADP guy. Right. Um, but with these like, you know, fast drafts like this, um, I, especially like on the NFBC site, I do some prep beforehand. I look at ADP and then I, I move I personally like move players up that I like and then upload it into like the the queue thing. So I have like my own personal ADP, if that makes sense. Um, so that that kind of helps me too. And it keeps me, at least keeps the guys that I really do like more than consensus higher up in that little thing that everyone sees. You can't, you can't not look at it because it's right there. It's got all these players' names. So it, it helps me a little bit in the middle of the draft, especially like with, you know, like you said, Sarah, one minute on the clock, you don't have your headphones and you're freaking out. It's like, oh, let me get this guy. So that that's 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 how I try to use ADP in these fast drafts, um, just kind of as a tool. But sometimes you just default to be like, yeah, this is where this guy's going. He works for my team. I'll just draft him. The the tool that you're talking about, especially on the NFBC draft room, is completely underutilized from my understanding as well. If you draft in, if your draft software, where if it's on FBCs, on Yahoo, CBS, wherever it is, if you have the ability to import your own rankings slash your own ADP, why aren't you not doing that? Do that. <laughs> so I'm glad you call that out because I think it's something that I think it's it's also something that people know exists, but they don't actually use it. Yeah. Like go the extra step, use it. Uh, Sarah, like, were you surprised that of the numbers I threw out there, that how tight this draft ended up being to ADP on average? Of course, there were some players that there were some swings here or there, but on average, it was so close. Yeah, I'm very surprised by this. I'm kind of fascinated by it, and I sort of want to go back and look at it. Um, that's wild to me. I That said... I use ADP as a guide for what I think is going on in the room. Like, are people just abandoning it entirely and doing their thing? I, I feel like in every draft, somewhere in the middle to like mid-teens rounds, everybody, as you mentioned, Adam, when you were setting this up, people start abandoning their ADP. For me, it was like after that schemes pick, I was like, okay, I need to pull this back together, take some pitchers I actually believe are going to pitch and like reset to like, be a little bit less risky about this draft and actually really love the end of my draft because of that um i got some guys like orlando arcia like super late that that's a great pick he's gonna play he plays for a great offense i got him with great value towards the end but in before that happens you don't want to stray too much from adp because you you there's an opportunity cost from doing that right like you might be able to wait on that guy and get him a full round later and you can get two of your guys, right? And so I try to be very true to values. And and the what I mean by that is you take your uh, auction calculator projection and you run it off of what the value of the slot is that you're looking at relative to the player. And I look for the dudes who have surplus value at the point in the draft that they are going. Um, obviously that varies depending on which projection system you use, but that's sort of how I like to determine where the values are in the draft. I also like to use that to set my KDS, my Kentucky Derby system, like where I want to draft because I want to draft in places where there's early values in 
the ADP of those picks. Um, I am stunned, actually, that it influences this room that much. Because this room is is not a room of people who are doing three or four drafts. I mean, you said you've done nine. Is that right, Adam? Yeah, yeah. This was this was my ninth draft I finished up. Yeah, I've got I had four gladiators, a draft and hold from first pitch Arizona. Yep. This I mean, this is like my sixth or seventh draft, and I've got TGFBI. Oh, the on the wire listener pod, like got TGFBI coming up. I've got a Palazzo pod coming up. I'm gonna do an OC later this year. Like I'm like I'm in the same boat where I'm. I, I draft a lot. I like drafting. I, I think it teaches me a little bit about what people are going to do and where I can take those risks and why I want to have two catchers early or what I do if I can't get two catchers early. And it makes me a lot more confident in my strategy going forward. But I, I'm honestly stunned that this room was that wedded to ADP because if you had asked me before giving me the numbers, I would have I would have said that was not correct. Yeah, the other thing that was a little surprising was the fact that of these players that again were only drafted and were drafted in all those ninety-six drafts, uh, we only saw uh five min picks since January first. If you compare it to the other fifteen team drafts since January first, two of them were at the top. So they're not really doesn't really count Acuna and Bobby Wood Jr. being one, two. Those aren't really they're min picks by default. Uh Zach Wheeler was technically a min pick. Uh, 17 was before Jenny took him at 16 overall. Uh, and then uh, we had a min pick on Pete Fairbanks again by one spot. It picked it 61st overall. Min pick was 62. So later on, they just want to pick Bailey Ober, um, one pick below his men. So the fact that we didn't, we just didn't see a, like a lot of get your guys um, that we might have seen. In uh, in other rooms, Shelley, like I I I I agree with you in a lot of respects. Where you're talking about going with your rankings, obviously importing your rankings and going with that. But how much you know value do you feel it is to work the room? Kind of like what Sarah was talking about, like working the room, knowing what's going on, using ADP to your advantage, or is it strictly like? Hey, I need to stick with my process. These are my rankings. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not risking that. Um. Yeah. I mean, because how I do my rankings is kind of based on ADP, and I just like maybe move up a guy, a couple of spots, or whatever. So, I mean, I I kind of do that, but I am definitely a more fly by the cuff, go with your heart type of drafter, and it it's it's worked for me so far. Uh, knock on wood. Hopefully it doesn't. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just kind of like go with the flow and um, I love like fast drafts that I can see. Oh, I can see that this person needs a catcher. I need a catcher. Let me get a catcher before that person get a catcher kind of thing. So it it's all kind of intertwined, I guess. So I kind of follow it, but mm, sometimes I just got to go get my guys. Yeah, I love the get your guys strategy and I do that a lot too. One of the things I will add, my where I'm drafting influences how much I'm paying attention to ADP a lot. So if I'm in the middle, if I'm in like the five, six, seven, eight range, I'm more likely to be paying attention to ADP because it feels because I'm going to be in the middle of those runs. Like I don't have to worry as much about, oh my God, I'm on the wrong side of the board and like all of the starting pitchers have gone or all of the catchers have gone or something like that. If I'm on an end, 
I'm really trying to just draft my strategy. Like I've probably done a handful of mock drafts looking at what happens when I take this guy number two or this guy number one. Well, number one is Ronald Acuna Jr. This guy number 15 and this guy number 16, right? And then I'm trying to execute a strategy. And in some ways, I find that that frees me up from ADP because when you're on that end, you can't wait for ADP to come back to you. You need a catcher. And if the catcher run happens on the wrong side of the board, you're in a world of hurt. And to your point, Sarah, those bins that I mentioned earlier, they were all hap- They all happen on the turn. Uh, Jenny on one side of the turn, and then uh, uh, Marty on the on the in the on the on the other on the other side of the turn so that uh, is completely relevant for sure this was awesome i kind of love the new format with the clock and i think it did sort of keep us going back and forth on some of these issues maybe not in a way that like we agreed with each other on occasion but i do think that we wound up getting to some deeper ideas about why we're talking about each of these things or what our decision process was if you liked the new format uh let us know we're going to run it back next week again with Shelly's DARF draft. Um, and we're excited to bring you that show. But before we go, we always end the show with a love it or leave it. One thing from baseball news this week that we are thrilled about or over. And Shelly, absolutely love your love it or leave it this uh, week. So I'm going to start with you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this was like really, really big news. Uh, Ginny uh, Kavnar was just announced as the A's primary play-by-play announcer. And when I saw, you know, the news, I was like, is this really? The A's are doing this? This is like awesome. I mean, the the play on the field's probably not going to be the great, but I am definitely going to be tuning into A's games to listen to Jenny be the primary play-by-play announcer. I mean, it's just huge. It's like the first, it's the first woman in MLB history to get, um, you know, a job like this. So this is just absolutely outstanding and, I don't say this often, but kudos to Oakland. <laughs> it's so weird because I don't say that often either. It's like <laughs> Oakland has done every terrible thing in the last few years to make all of us furious with them. And this was great. And I, I agree with you as, um, you know, the Cubs have Beth Bowens as one of their substitute announcers. She comes on a few games a year, generally when Boog is on vacation or when, you know, Pat Hughes can't fill in or whatever. And so we get to hear her maybe six or seven times a year. She's great, by the way. I love Beth Moens doing play-by-play for the Cubs. But to have a team hire Jenny for that job full-time, as a kid who, the first job I wanted when I was a little kid, I told people I wanted to be Harry Carey when I grew up. And everybody thought that was bonkers because like this little girl and Harry Carey's like this crazy old guy who's calling Cubs games. So that was awesome. And I could not agree with your love it or leave it more. Uh, Adam, what about you? Well, I would, I want to amend mine just a little bit, just to ban- jump on the Oakland, you know, hate bandwagon is somebody who lived in Oakland for like nine for nine years. I love Oakland and I miss it tremendously. Um, and now with the news that has come forth that, they have a meeting with the city of uh, the Oakland A's have a meeting with the uh, city of Oakland to possibly negotiate the, the terms of their extend their lease. Um, part of me, I, I would leave that. <laughs> I kind of hope, and we we're talking about this in the disc in the PL discord earlier today. Um, I'm on the, the sides. Like I hope the city of Oakland is just like, Nope. Like, after all this, after everything you put us through and everything that we've gone through, um, no, <laughs> simple as that. So I can leave that for sure. But what I actually put on here 
Um, it's just we got to the time of year, obviously, that we are seeing, you know, pitchers and catchers report. And that's amazing. But we're also seeing the arbitration results come through. Uh, and I'm really happy to see players being announced as winning their arbitration cases. The most notable one most recently, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. won his record setting arbitration case. We've seen a lot of settlements, which are also good. That's great. But at the same time, um, I, I, I could leave the arbitration process in general. So much bl- bad blood ends up happening. Just the process in general is like literally like, hey, this is why you're terrible. This is why we're not going to spend you know an extra $100,000 on your contract. That That can go away. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think there's a non-zero chance that's part of what has Corbin Burns pitching for the Orioles and being traded rather than staying in Milwaukee or signing an extension, which like, I, I'm not a Milwaukee Brewers fan. I'm a Cubs fan, obviously. So like, I'm glad he's out of the division. But for fans of the Milwaukee Brewers, that was a bright spot and they just lose it because the 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 poison... Uh, that happens in that process of telling someone all the bad things that they did and all the reasons they're not worth what they want to be paid is just is awful. And frankly, billionaires have a lot of money. They don't they don't need to keep that money from players. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, my love it is uh, mine's mine's a love it this week. Uh, if you are a Cubs fan and you follow Justin Steele, if you don't follow Justin Steele, you, you maybe should anyway. He's just kind of a nice Twitter follow. He loves video games and he's kind of a kid from Mississippi who's living the dream. And he's he's a great guy. But he arrived at Cubs camp and saw uh, Shota Imanaga throwing a bullpen and immediately went took to Twitter to say that the pitches were filthy and he was going to go buy Shota's rookie cards. And I just, it's the time of year where we're seeing some of these guys for the first time. And I love that a professional baseball player who got votes for the Cy Young last year is like all up in this hyping his teammate who came over from Japan and is about to live his dream, right? Like it is, it is the time of dreams, spring training forever. <laughs> that, that tweet alone was the reason I drafted him in this draft. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a great reason to draft him. And Shota Monaga, in my opinion, we did not talk about him in these debates. Maybe we will in a future draft recap, but I think he's crazy undervalued right now. I loved that pick. All right, before we wrap up, uh, Shelly, I'm going to start with you. Where can people find your work and what are you working on right now? Uh, yeah, you can find me um, on Twitter at ShellyV underscore 643. Um, and I'm doing um, a weekly kind of um, off-season recap of transactions and stuff. So, you know, hopefully Cody Bellinger signs with the club soon so I can have something to write about. So, yeah, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Dude, fr- from your lips to Jed Hoyer's ears, I'm going crazy it is february 13th as we record this and the cubs are worse than they were last year cody bellinger nat chapman jordan montgomery blake snell all just sitting out there could make the team better TikTok, jed hoyer uh adam thank you so much for joining us today you do such amazing work for the entire pitcher list podcast network i'm truly impressed by all of it uh what else are you working on where can people find you and your work sure um i mean anything that i do is going to be tweeted out at 80 grade that's all spelled out but pretty much 99% of the things I do ends up on On The Wire. It's at On The Wire Pod. We put out a episode every Sunday in season. It's most almost all fab-related. So you're looking at your uh, your weekly fab options. And Kevin Hastings and I have been... This will be our fourth season doing the pod, so we're uh, excited to get this going. We just crossed the 150 mark. I'm hoping to get to 200 by you know next PitchCon. So that'll be fun. 
that's amazing. And congrats on 150 episodes doing, doing podcast businesses. It takes a lot of effort and time and scheduling and recruiting people. And y'all do a great job over there. I love On The Wire. You're, and the one other thing I'll say about On The Wire, if you're not following, um, that podcast does category previews rather than position previews, which I have always found super helpful because in Roto in particular, you're looking for categories. Like it's it's less relevant whether your first baseman gives you your home runs or your outfielder gives you your home runs, but you need some power guys. And I love the way you look at the draft like that. Yeah, thanks a lot. And this was a blast. Thank you so much for having like being one of the top the first five guests on a podcast is always like a nice little bucket list thing. And you guys uh you guys knocked it out of the park. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Adam. I appreciate that. Um, I am, as always, BCB underscore Sarah. There's no H on the Sarah. You can find my Cubs writing at Bleed Cubby Blue. You can find my fantasy baseball takes over at Baseball HQ. I'm doing the playing time tomorrow column over there. And you can find me here with Shelly every week debating the most controversial issues in fantasy baseball. Let us know what controversies you've got going on. We'll hash them out here at Fantasy Feud. Until next time.